Hey, it's Jonathan here from The Leadership Gap. I wanted to let you know that we're going to be doing a special episode this week. Laura and I are getting ready for some pretty big deliverables. So not to leave you hanging, we decided to do a throwback episode. Now, we don't have that many episodes right now. So what exactly are we throwing back to? Well, before we became The Leadership Gap, I actually had a communication podcast that you may have heard. It's called the Mindful Communication Podcast. It was one of the most popular communication podcasts in the world. And I had the privilege of interviewing dozens of the foremost experts in the realm of communication, just real great thought leaders um, that had amazing things to share when it comes to being a leader and communicating effectively. And I want to replay one of those episodes, specifically with a woman named Marsha Reynolds. Marsha is a former president of the International Coaching Federation, and she has many, many accolades in the world of coaching, having helped start a bunch of coaching schools, etc., etc. And she had come out with a book called Coach the Person, Not the Problem at the time of the interview. And uh, aside from the fact that this is an amazing title for a book, which explains so much of what this conversation is going to be about, Marsha has amazing insights to offer for any leader, whether you're managing your team or managing yourself. Coaching the person rather than the problem is a powerful insight. And in this episode, we go in depth into what that actually looks like, how to actually practice that, and what are the expected results? What's the impact of taking that approach? So I hope you enjoy the episode and we'll be back in the very near future with some great new content to help you bridge your leadership gap. Stay tuned. You're listening to. You're listening to. You're listening to. You're listening to. The Leadership Gap. The Leadership Gap. The Leadership Gap. The Leadership Gap. A podcast of unboring conversations and practical tools intended to have you bridge your own leadership gaps. We're your hosts, Jonathan Miller. He, him. And Laura Banks. She, her. Marsha, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jonathan. Thanks for asking me. Yeah, and uh, I'm really excited. I'm honored that you're here. We're going to talk about your new book, Coach the Person, Not the Problem, um, which is a very poignant uh, title, very very straightforward title, and we're going to dive into that. But first, I want to get a little bit more about you, have our listeners find out a little bit more about you, and specifically just around coaching, um, because this is a podcast about communication. Um, we have you as a coach and, you know, the coaching conversation is a very unique kind of conversation. And what I would love to know from you is what has you um, be a coach? I mean, you've been a coach for a while now. So what kind of keeps you in the profession? What kind of keeps you going? Well, you know, Jonathan, it, it started actually decades ago. I uh, had an accidental career in training for companies. I kind of fell into it. And um, I was assigned to do communications and leadership training for a corporation. So I went back to get another master's degree to, I, so I could learn how to design training. And my, it created this question in my mind, what does it really take to change people's behavior? Because what I found was people would come through my classes and they'd give me the happy faces. They say, oh, this is wonderful. You changed my life. But then they would go back and do the same thing. And I'm like, you know, this doesn't work. Telling people what to do doesn't work. And mm. so I kept looking for making my training better, making my training better. Um, 
But then it was in, in the 90s, I was working for a company and we totally um, changed the entire culture because we were really close to bankruptcy and they needed to change the product and the market and they gave me the culture. Well, we shifted into uh, teams and worked with the leaders to engage people in different ways. And, and I did a lot of one-on-one conversations with the senior leaders and really exploring what is it we need to change? Uh, what does it look like? Uh, so it was more exploring than telling. And then I found coaching. So I got deep into the science of coaching, not just the practice, and discovered why it's so powerful and realize that a coaching conversation can really change minds, which which changes behavior forever. So training can inspire people to go out and try, but coaching really is that guide that helps them stay on the path and make the changes. And so I've become passionate about coaching ever since um, that last company and uh, in the mid-90s when I first found coaching. And so, you know, what is, what is unique about this coaching conversation? Is that the point of the coaching conversation? Is like, is that to like, is it to change minds? Like what makes it so special? Well, again, for me, I was looking at, uh, I was really the science of long-term behavioral change. What does it really take to change people's minds and behavior? And I can remember this one speaker even saying that, you know, people don't really change. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't think that's true. I think I have changed. And uh, you know, what was it? And and that's one, it's, again, it's not about telling people what to do because, you know, cognitive memory is very short and then they distort it and people just don't hear you. <laughs> mm. But when you just sit with them and help them to think, to look at their thinking, to take the stories out of their heads and, you know, put them on the table. Let's look at your story. Let's look at the beliefs, the assumptions. And they start to see their stories. Then they see exactly what needs to change. When they do that for themselves, then, then the change is permanent. And once Mm -hmm. there's a rewiring in the brain, then there's change in behavior. So, Yes, coaching, you know, it works on a different part of the brain than just telling people what to do. And that's what got me so excited um, is how it's done. But it also, at the end of the conversation, people feel really good about the change, even if it was uncomfortable in the moment when they know there's other possibilities out there. There's, there's a relief. So, and they feel better about themselves. So there's an emotional shift as well as a behavioral shift, which I think is just awesome. And uh, one theme that kind of popped up in when you were speaking, I heard the word a couple times, is around this idea of learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and you talk a lot. You talk about that a lot in the book. Um, yeah. I remember one quote in particular: the idea of the moment we become unsure of what we know, that's when learning happens. Yeah. <laughs> Well, there has to be an opening, doesn't there? When mm-hmm. um, you know, when people already know the answer then there's no openness to learn. Yeah. Um, and again, if you tell them we're wrong, then they just shut down. That's right, yeah. And you and you even mentioned how, like from your experience, and you have, you know, this this wealth of experience, you've actually noticed that the the smarter people are actually the best rationalizers. Yeah. And are likely to have a harder time kind of grappling with, with um, really taking in this new information and therefore, 
you know, becoming unsure of what they know and then yes. therefore limiting that learning, right? Yes. And there's many, you know, neuroscientists that say that as well as, you know, learning uh, psychologists that uh, the smarter we are, the quicker we form our rationalizations. So mm -hmm. I know I'm right and here's why. Yeah. And we've all heard people say that even though the rationalization they then state is like, really? That sounds crazy to me. <laughs> <laughs> they rationalize that, right? <laughs> Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, we, we make decisions with our emotions and then we rationalize our decisions with our, quote, logic. Mm. Um, so, and it's just our personal logic. And and we, we make up reality all the time. I mean, there's very few things in life that are absolute truths, but we we talk as if they are, even though we've made it up. <laughs> so yeah. we have to help people and it's a little uncomfortable for those people that pride themselves on what they know just to again not tell them they're wrong but you just lay out their story and say so it sounds as if you believe this is true um, what do you think about that and all of a sudden they see that they've been acting on a, a belief they've held for years that that when they look at it they know it's not true or they're making assumptions about the future that they're just making up, that there's other things. And they see that on their own. Now, in that moment that they recognize that they have an inherited belief or a, 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 a made-up assumption, they do feel uncomfortable because they, they identify as, I'm the one who knows, and now all of a sudden I have to accept I don't know. Mm. And that's okay. That's the moment that they're open to learn mm -hmm. because they realize they don't know. Yeah, that's that's a really great way to describe it. And, and you're kind of hinting at um, kind of one aspect of the book that I really I really wanted to talk about um, is because you talk a lot about this this process of inquiry that leads to that, right? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I think it'd be useful for our listeners for you to really distinguish the difference between um, the process of inquiry versus like a series of questions and, and specifically actually I'd love for you to talk on, um, reflective inquiry, which is what you spend a bunch of time in the book talking about. Yeah. Well, you, one of the, the things I'm really grateful for is that that second master's degree was in education and adult learning. So when I say learning, I see coaching as a learning technology. I don't see it as uh, therapy, psychology, yeah, there's aspects of neuroscience in the impact, mm. but it's but we're helping people learn uh, and expand their thinking in a broader way. Love that. So yeah, and so I went back into my research because I'm like, I've been talking about reflection for years. Where did that come from? And I realized it didn't come from my studies in psychology. That I went all the way back to my work. Uh, decades ago, and found uh, John Dewey, who was an educational reformer and wrote a book in 1910 called How We Think. Mm -hmm. And in there, he pretty much defines coaching. His intention was that teachers should help students think more broadly for themselves, that that's how kids would learn better. So he said, you know, you have to reflect to them how they think so they can think about their thinking. And then your questions come out of curiosity. 
about what's going on in the conversation, not about memory, memorizing those powerful questions that you learn to ask. Because when you're trying to remember what question should I ask, then all of a sudden you're not present. Mm. And you're going to miss the key moment that you need to reflect back to them when they tell you what they really want or what they're, they're so angry about. You have to catch that moment and, and just give it back to them. You reflect it back and say, so I hear what you're saying you really want is this. Is that the outcome you want to work toward? You know, or you're really angry or, or disappointed with those people. Um, can we look at what it was you expected to happen and it didn't? Those questions come out of the curiosity from what they said not out of memorizing, although in the moment right now it is, but <laughs> but just as an example. So questions uh, do get people to think, but not deep enough. I often use reflection even without question. I think reflection, summarizing, paraphrasing, pulling out the key, key words, um, and sharing with them the emotional shifts that you notice. So they actually can take the stories out of their head, the stories they're living by, and look at the stories objectively. That's the power of coaching, and that's reflective inquiry. So Dewey said that uh, questions get answers, but reflections provoke insight. Oh, wow. That's a that's a great quote. And, and uh, what I loved about your book is, and this must have been something that many many coaches have experienced, but um, I know I definitely experienced this, is this idea of trying to find the right question. Sometimes I get mm-hmm. caught up, and you kind of alluded to that. When you're trying to think of the right question, you're, mm-hmm. you're not present in the conversation. And I think this applies not just to being a coach. This is like in any conversation. I was just doing another podcast interview, and the conversation of this idea of like, uh, so many of our miscommunications happen because we 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 dip out of that moment of presence. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's the same thing with being a coach. If you really want to have that person have that insight, be able to reflect for them. It's mm-hmm. not thinking too much about the question. It's just kind of reflecting back, um, mm-hmm. and then kind of just just getting curious around whatever it is, not about asking the perfect question. And I guess the reason why I'm just saying all this is because I really felt like I had permission to really do that, to, to think a little bit less critically about the questions and just be in the conversation. Um, any, any thoughts on that? Yeah. And, you know, first I want to say what you first said about uh, it can be any conversation and it's true. And especially right now when people are really, really stuck in their stress and anxiety um, they need you to help them think. Uh, so, th- so you can use these techniques, whether you're talking to, you know, a colleague, a friend, uh, someone in your family. Um, I always say that they, they want you to be present more than they need you to be perfect. So there's no perfect question there that, that presence, that makes them feel as if you're listening to them and you value what they have to say and and they're okay no matter what it is that they're feeling there's so much power in that 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 sense of you're with me and I'm okay 
And if we can just give that to people, and we do that by sharing what we hear. So you're telling me this is, is do I have it right? Um, what do you think about that? How does that relate to who you think you are or, um, you know, what you want for yourself in the future? There's, that's the essence. And we can do that in any conversation. And, and it makes people feel good and they want to open up to you instead of you saying, oh, don't feel that way. It's all going to be okay. It's like, don't do that. That discounts Mm. them. Yeah. Yeah. And you even you even uh, wrote at some point in the book, I, I just I wrote this down because I loved it. It, it. One of the one of the instructions was not to worry too much about, co- about the coaching and just just go love them. Go. Love yes. Them. Well, first off, one of my other favorite quotes is thinking is the enemy of the coach. Mm-hmm. So quit thinking. And then he was my first teacher, the, the man who created the first coaching school and the ICF, Thomas Leonard said that, you know, we were all in the first class. He said, go coach. And we're like, how can we coach? We don't know how. We don't know what we're doing. And we thought we had to perfect our skills before we could go out there and risk coaching. He says, oh, it doesn't matter. Just go love them. And I was like, oh, my God. And, you know, I look back, Jonathan, I look back on my testimonials, my first few years of coaching, who knows what I was doing, (laughs) you know, because I was just learning it. But the testimonials were great, you know. People were like, whoa, I got so much value. Just creating a safe space for them to talk, Hmm. you know. And then I just got better at it over the years, and the impact was even deeper, Um. So, no, you don't have to be a perfect coach to go coach. And you can use these in any conversation starting today. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, the quote also, I actually want to start diving a little bit into the book because, I Mm -hmm. mean, one thing that sticks out for me is is one of the recommended practices, um, catch and release judgment. And and maybe we can come back to that, um, Mm -hmm. how important that is in a coaching conversation. But uh, again, I mean, this applies to any of our relationships. Um. You talk about you talk about a number of alternatives you're you're um, proposing, and I, I want to talk about the title of the book specifically. This idea mm-hmm. of coaching the person, not the problem. So maybe you can tell us a little bit, kind of where that idea came from. Mm. Well, you know, I've been mentoring, assessing, and teaching coaching skills uh, for twenty years. I'm on faculty of schools, not just in the U.S., but in Russia, China, the Philippines. India and address coaches everywhere. Um, and we're, when we're dealing with the human, the person in front of us, there's just, we're, there's so many things where we're alike. Now their problem's going to be different because the context and the culture and all of that. But the person sitting in front of you is a human being who's stuck. And you're there to help them see beyond stuck so they know what else is possible. Um, So I found in all those years when I'm working with coaches, they they get stuck on trying to solve the problem and trying to help the person move forward. And they forget that I am a thinking partner. I'm just helping this smart person who's stuck to see beyond their beliefs, their assumptions, the the needs that caused emotions. And if they can see what those are, then they can see what else is possible. So 
it's that old saying, you can't see beyond the box until you see the box. Mm. I'm just helping them see the box so they can then see beyond it. And so it's coach the person, not the problem. You'll be far more powerful and you have far more impact when you're just working with the person in front of you. And to remember that they're creative, resourceful, and whole. Don't forget that. They don't need you to fix them or to heal them. They just need you to think along with them. Hmm. Yeah, that's. I, I think that that's um, just a really powerful assumption uh, to just kind of start off by thinking that, listen, this person is whole and complete and they're okay and they're incredibly mm-hmm. resourceful. Yeah. Um, and I can imagine in your experience, uh, maybe you can confirm or, or share a story about what happens when you do make that assumption, when you do assume, you know, this person's got it. And, mm-hmm. and then uh, what, com- what becomes available from that? Yeah. Well, it is amazing because I have experienced over and over and even to this day, because I heard you heard me say I was a trainer all those years. So for 16 years, I ran training departments and companies. So my habit is to tell people what to do. So I was a leader mm-hmm. and a trainer. And so shifting into just being curious and trusting, that was a hard shift for me too. And and to this day, I find myself when I'm working with, uh, with leaders, especially younger leaders, that I just want to jump in and tell them what to do because I know. <laughs> and mm. every time I step back and say, you know, this person has had experience. Even if they've never been a leader before, they've worked for leaders. And I bet they had leaders they liked and leaders they didn't like. Or in some cases, they never had a leader they liked. So let's look at what they didn't like and what they'd like to do different. And when I trust that there's a lot that they know, they always come up with it. They always have things to share. Even when they say to me, I don't know, what do you think? I, I won't fall into that trap. I'll step back and say, you know, I have some ideas, but I'd first like to hear you know, what are some of the things you would like to create? What leaders did you see or have had in your life or or other people have talked about that you really liked what they did? Let's take a look at that and see what's possible for you. They always have things. So I always say coach first. And then if you get to a point where they absolutely have no experience and nothing to draw on, then you can say. So, you know, sounds to me as if you need some suggestions is that true you know and then you take off coaching hat um but coach first and see what it is they really know because often it's more about their courage than it is their lack of knowledge you're listening to the mindful communication podcast and today i'm sitting down with marsha reynolds already you can tell that i'm having an absolute blast talking to Marsha. This interview was an absolute delight. And in the first half, we really covered some amazing stuff about the reflective inquiry process, what the difference is between an inquiry rather than just asking a series of questions and the cost of jumping right away into advice giving. And in the second half of this interview, we continue to go down the rabbit hole. We talk more about how we can ask powerful questions that really come about by just listening deeply, how we can really encourage learning in a conversation, 
And Marsha finishes off by giving us some really powerful examples from her own life that really give us pause to contemplate how we want to show up in our conversations. And and one thing that, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that you're suggesting is that sometimes just jumping into that advice giving first rather than coaching can actually waste time. We might be tempted to think that giving that advice right, right away is, is the time saver. But um, is it possible that that's not entirely accurate? It's totally not accurate. <laughs> Number one. All right, it's confirmed. It's not accurate. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're creating what we call learned helplessness. Mm. So they don't have to think. You're pacifying their brain. So when they run into a similar problem, they're going to run to you. So I always ask leaders, uh, how much time could you get back if they didn't always have to come to you for the answers? You know, or how many, how much time during a day do they come to you for answers? Would you like to decrease that? Hmm. So if you develop their mind so they can start thinking for themselves, then they'll go start thinking for themselves and you'll have more time to do your bigger work. So number one, uh, you don't want them to stop thinking for themselves. Um, number two, I always say, what's the definition of a leader? Are you there just to tell people what to do or are you there to develop them? And development doesn't mean just skills. It also means developing their mind. Hmm. Um, and they will so appreciate that. So that's motivation. When I know that you trust me and you believe in me to find the answers and you're going to help me, then I'm more motivated to work for you. So it increases um, motivation as well. And then the third thing is, you know, we talked about this before this call, is that when you tell people what to do, you're only using their cognitive capacity, which right now under a lot of stress is very limited. Mm. Um, so it's like the cup fills up really fast. So you tell me what to do. I say, yay, great. Thank you. And then I leave. Oh, and I have all these emails I need to do. And oh, I have to fight this fire. And all of a sudden, I don't remember what you said. And if I do then recall it, I'm going to change it. And there's going to be details that I'm going to change or I'm going to miss. Mm -hmm. And then tomorrow when I come back to you, you're going to be angry with me because I remembered it different. And then we're going to argue about it. No, this yeah. is what you told me. No, this is what I said. So it's it's crazy making. It um, People don't get your full message when you just tell them. They don't remember. Attention spans are very short. And then it leads to um, disappointment and arguments when they don't yeah. remember exactly what you said. Yeah, not to mention, uh, you, you mentioned in the book, this idea of the, the cognitive brain being really good at problem solving, mm -hmm. but it's not good at learning. And so ultimately, mm -hmm. in that scenario, you just kind of gave an example of right. learning's not happening. They're, they're just solving problems, um, but there's no kind of forward momentum. They're, they're not building on anything. They're, like you so eloquently put, they're putting out fires. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and it also reminds me of um, just this idea of, of short-term gains for long-term pains. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's this classic, um, and you know, not that, not that I'm like high-browing anyone, I'm, you know, I'm just as guilty of this as anyone else, but just kind of reacting with what we think is going to be best, but it's going to help only in the short term. And mm -hmm. naturally in the long term, if we make this coaching thing kind of like a habit, mm -hmm. um, as like more of a default reaction of just getting curious and empowering others to find the answers, in mm -hmm. the long run, 
it will no kidding actually save us time. Yeah. And I've also, and I've seen this not just in organizations, which mm-hmm. I'm sure you can share a lot about. I've seen, I've had parenting experts on the show and they say the same thing as well. You know, parents are using these quick, like little punishment reward, like things to, you know, teach, quote, teach their kids, um, you know, and get the results that they want quickly at the cost of um, kind of nurturing a long-term relationship, having the kids learn. Um, what are your thoughts on all of that? Well, first I want to say that when we say long-term, we're not talking that long. So, you know, because I see this all the time or hear it that leaders say, yeah, but I don't have time for that. We have to solve this now. Getting people to see things differently and, and, and trusting that they can doesn't take that much time. But mm. you've got to sit down and do it, you know, and start listening to them, helping them think, and they'll start doing it for their self and they're going to recognize that you're not going to give them the answers anyway. So why bother? (laughs) You know, and, and I told you that Dewey um, created all of this reflective inquiry to work with teachers who were working with students in elementary school. Mm. And, and so this isn't just for adults. This helps children think better and, and school should be focused on, developing minds, not just opening the brain and dumping in information that we don't remember. Because how many of those quizzes that you took in school, if you took them now, you'd pass? Probably not many. So memorization is what school is usually based on. And that, you know, like I said, it's limited capacity. We don't remember. And it doesn't necessarily change behavior. You know, and I want to just share an example about that. that, um, Yeah, please. Well, one question I I ask when I teach uh, in uh, people is, um, how many of you know you should be doing something and you're just not doing it? Everybody raises their hand. Uh, like even now, it's it's they know they should get up and go for a walk, but they don't. Yeah. You know, so so the simple thing is, you know, diet and exercise, but there's just things, you know, people in my life that I really need to fix that relationship, but I don't. And and so information, knowing I should do something doesn't mean that I go do it. So just telling people why you should do this, that doesn't work either. Mm. You know, so again, um, if you take time and, and even I think... Uh, there was an example in the book um, uh, for me and my boss. Um, yeah, I'd love for was, you to share share that little example there. Yeah, and it, it was just like it was one qu- one reflection and one question. And I hope it's the same example. I have a few from him. But there was a time I was complaining about uh, all my coworkers. Yeah. And this is, you know, common, you know, high achievers often complain about everyone else. It's actually their way of saying, you're not giving me enough attention. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And see how much more work I do. And because we like to be acknowledged for the work we do. And a lot of leaders forget that their high achievers need recognition as well. And they need to pay attention to them and, and they often ignore them. So I was with my boss and I was complaining about, uh, you know, all these other people, my coworkers, my partners in other departments, they just don't care as much. They're not working as hard. And he stopped me and he said, wow, it seems like everybody disappoints you. 
that reflection just took my breath away and it made me just think is is that it I, i'm disappointed what is it and then he stepped in with the question he said will anyone ever be good enough for you i couldn't even answer him in that moment i'm like i have to get back to you on this <laughs> and that week i really went into process of have I been doing this to all my relationship, holding people up to a standard that I can barely meet? And I realized that I did do that, that I was always judging, judging people, judging myself. And I lived in that space. And it helped me that one reflection and one question helped me to look at what I needed to do to redefine my relationships, um, to soften my judgment. And um, actually, it led me to be uh, a much better leader because I wasn't people holding everyone to my standards. I was really looking at what was excellence for them and what was important to them. So that was a powerful moment for me. Wow. So, so powerful. Just, I think, a, a great example of the power of a single question. Mm-hmm. to really um, stoke some amazing answers that obviously um, had a huge impact on you. Yeah. There's there's this quote in the book. I would be remiss if I didn't bring it up because it, um, it struck me. And it's uh, a quote from uh, Hannah Arendt. Mm. I hope mm-hmm. I'm pronouncing her name right. Um, and I've read, I've read a lot of her quotes. I've read a lot of her stuff, but I, I actually have never seen this quote before. The, and I think we touched on this earlier, but I'm going to read this anyway because I'd love to get your thoughts on it. The need of reason is not inspired by the quest for truth. The need Mm -hmm. of reason is not inspired by the quest of truth, but by the quest for meaning. Mm -hmm. And truth and meaning are not the same. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm not even, I don't even remember the context of that, but I was Mm -hmm. so taken back by that, especially because me, I'm like, just, I can be so analytical sometimes looking Mm -hmm. for that rationalization, that reason. Mm-hmm. And yet what she, I, I, I get that she's suggesting here is that I'm not really trying to find the quote truth about a situation. I'm trying to find the, really the best answer. I'm not trying to actually make meaning of a situation. Right. And it's important to know that it's not about truth. Um, you know, I th- think I said earlier that, uh, you know, there's very little in life that's an absolute truth. And we realize that the older we get, we look back and say, huh, what I believe to be true is is now I know it's not. Um, The brain is a meaning-making machine. We have to have meaning about everything in order to be able to move forward. So even as you're walking down the street and you see, um, oh, wow, look at that big rock that's on the sidewalk. And as you get closer, you realize it's a paper bag. Well, that's because your brain had to make meaning out of that brown thing that Mm. was up there. And... And sometimes the closer we get to looking at something, which is what we do for people in coaching, we see it's something else. So to understand that every incident um, that I experience and in all of my life, that I have put meaning on it, which at the time helped me to feel better, helped me to feel like I understood it. But it's not about truth. Meaning makes me feel comfortable. Um, and often once I get that meaning, I don't look any deeper 
to see what other truth might exist. I think that's one of the most powerful things in coaching is that people get comfortable in their meaning and then they get angry when other people might uh, threaten or challenge their meaning. You know, we see that on Facebook all the time (laughs) when actually, you know, when we just step back and say, you know, can we take a look at your story and just, you know, the, the beliefs that the people hold that meaning is what holds the story in place. Mm. But if we can step back and look at that, it's like, so how did you define that situation? What does that mean to you? How does that relate to the goal you want to create? And people start really pulling apart their beliefs, their meaning. They may see that there's other things. They may apply a new meaning to the situation, um, which then changes who they think they are, how they see the world, and then they change their behavior. Mm-hmm. And one thing you, you said right at the end there, I think is worth noting as well, is this idea that they come up with a new meaning in that stories are not necess- inherently bad. And I think this is a mm-hmm. distinction I think I needed to hear for myself that, you know, we make stories, we, we attach meaning to things, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Mm-hmm. It's just about distinguishing which ones serve us and which ones don't. Yes. Um, again, I, I think that, you know, our brain is a box of stories and it's like our operating system. We go about our day doing things, you know, based on the stories we hold in our head. It's not necessarily truth. It's just our stories. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. yeah. And, um, like I said, the stories are, our, the frame of the stories is our beliefs and our assumptions. And, and then even deeper, when we go deeper, you know, our needs, our values, the things that are important to us, um, if they're violated, then we react. So if we can just help people take the story out of their head <laughs> and look at the story, what might they see? Mm. And yeah. that's coaching. There it is. That's coaching. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What a wonderful note to start wrapping up this episode. Although I think that we could talk for another hour. I have many more questions, (laughs) but um, for, I want to know just, you know, for listeners, we we talked about a lot of great things today. And if they were going to take it into their own life, not necessarily in a coaching situation, what's, you know, one piece of, we're going to step into advice land here. But um, what's maybe one piece of infor- one piece of wisdom you'd love to impart? A piece of information that, if they practice it, will make a big difference in their life. But what what might that be? Well, you know, one of the things we didn't really get into is the the difference between being a coach and doing coaching mm-hmm. skills, and it's really about the presence you bring to a conversation. And just remember that you care about the person and you're curious. You're curious. Why do they think that way? So if you go in with care and curiosity and hold on to that, and every time you get stuck or you're judging or something's getting in the way, just go back to feeling, I care about this person and I'm curious. It'll change the conversation. Thank you for that, Marsha. And thanks for coming on to the show. This was wonderful to have you here. Oh, thanks for asking me, Jonathan. This podcast is brought to you by Level 7 Leadership, a leadership group who works with social impact entrepreneurs to develop their leadership skills so that they can take on the world's to-do list, minus the burnout.
If you enjoyed today's podcast, you can subscribe and leave us a review. Oh, or send us an email. That'd be really fun. And for more information on what we do, you can check us out at level7.is. That's level7 with the number 7.is. Music is by the very talented Shinogo. You can find him on Spotify or wherever you get your music.